Hello everyone. Welcome to our podcast around simplifying for success. Simplification requires discipline and clarity of thought. This is not often easy in today's rapid-paced work environment. We've invited a few colleagues in data and information governance space to share their strategies and approaches for simplification. Today, we will be talking with Katharina Kerner. Katharina is a senior leader who combines a PhD in EU law with senior management experience and a deep interest in new technologies and information security. From 2006 to 2015, she served in the Austrian Ministry of Interior and the Austrian Federal Ministry of European and International Affairs as a policy advisor and legal officer. From 2015 to 2022, she was the CEO of Culture and Language Institute with eight campuses across Eastern and Western Europe. During her tenure, she founded two additional campuses in Sarajevo and Moscow and led the GDPR implementation across the headquarter in Vienna and all 10 locations. Katharina's mission is to be a translator between privacy, policy and technology by contributing to responsible and privacy-preserving machine learning from a legal and a governance perspective. Currently, she is focusing on business applications and privacy compliance of privacy-enhancing technologies. Katharina is a policy fellow at the Privacy Tech Alliance (PTA), the global initiative by the Future of Privacy Forum, with a mission to define, enhance, and promote the market for privacy technologies. Today, our discussion is on privacy-enhancing technologies. More than a decade ago, the Dutch and the Ontario Data Protection Authorities recognized the role of technology in protecting privacy and coined the term PET or privacy-enhancing technologies. Pets deploy a broad range of techniques to protect the personal or sensitive information. The main purpose of pets is to protect data, but at the same time ensure the data can still be used for various business reasons, whether it's analytics, machine learning, or something else. Welcome to the show, Katharina. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Priya. Your LinkedIn profile says. you're bridging the world between privacy policy and it and i was particularly intrigued by those terms so what do you mean by bridging the world between privacy policy and it how do you do that um yeah thanks for that question for me it's really a matter of seeing things holistically this is what motivates me this is what i really like and particularly in the field of pets i found a subject where i can do that really well so privacy enhancing technologies the topic we're talking about today is has so many legal aspects business aspects business enabling aspects technical aspects re- regulatory requirements which have to be taken into account or are still about to be developed so it really covers a whole area of new developments new opportunities and that's where i come from those different perspectives looking at it so what is a pet what is a privacy enhancing technology how will it accelerate or an organization's data strategy privacy enhancing technologies are what i would call i personally call them also private privacy by design technologies or others it's more and more common to also call them partnership enhancing technologies federated learning differential privacy multi party computation um homomorphic encryption secure enclaves and synthetic data i think that's very commonly understood that it belongs to that group of privacy enhancing technologies 
And regarding the question how they can accelerate um, companies' data strategy, well, they really enable use of data or data sharing in completely new ways. Okay, so you know, you you said completely new ways, and and this is something that is very important and something that at least I can say some of um, our clients and are actively looking at, right? So how to incorporate privacy enhancing technologies so that they can make sure the data is protected and um, safe when they are sharing or doing what would be required from a business standpoint, right? So how do you bridge the gap between data protection on one side and value uh, on the other side? Um, You know, do you think privacy utility is truly possible? Uh, Yes, I do. I do. I think that um, pets in particular really help with that, that that we can generate more value from data, data sharing, data collaboration, at the same time, um, secure data better, but also um, secure the the privacy properties of the data better. So if we take an example, um, particularly the financial industry is very interested in privacy enhancing technologies, homomorphic encryption and multi-party computation, because in the end, eventually, it's even possible to share data with an adversary or someone where it's really, really, really important that it's not just a, a an agreement like on paper that the data will be kept confidential, but it actually by mathematical proofs, you the other party with who you share the data um, can really not look into the data. It's impossible proven by mathematical um, protocols to gain insight in the data that was used as input for generating the common output. So financial industry has a lot of requirements for know your customer. So data uh, banks need to share information at the same time there are those strict privacy regulations. So that's really a trade-off. That's really hard to bridge those two um, requirements. And by using for example, homomorphic encryption, where you compute on encrypted data, you can really gain insights in from data that stays encrypted or by multi-party computation that you have a collaboration on the data without, and you get the result without knowing what the other party actually put in, that's completely new. So that is what is so fascinating. And at the same time, because the technologies are quite hard to understand, I mean, I'm a legal person, so it took me a while to really wrap my head around the technologies and that what I think is still some kind of um, roadblock or some bottleneck that, yeah, it just takes some more time that regulators and lawyers and the um, data protection officers really wrap their heads around the technologies and that we can really use that in a broader way. But I think as soon as this has happened and it's about to happen, then we will see that those technologies will become state of the art in a couple of years. No, you ag- I agree with that. See, so the adoption, as you said, is not there because we still don't understand these technologies are there, but we all need to get comfortable and understand 
both the use cases as well as the needs around how to implement some of these technologies, right? And the regulators will have to get comfortable about how um, this protects privacy because, like you said, financial services is one example, but even other industries, retail, for example, right? Um, and and uh, it is important to be able to share data because nobody can work in isolation. No, even the European regulators of sort of UK, for example, is talking about AI um, and realize how data is important and how AI is important for economic growth and development and can help us in many ways. But this is not possible if data sharing is not possible. So it's not so much that data sharing needs to be stopped. It's how do you safely share data? You mentioned homomorphic encryption. What is homomorphic encryption? It just sounds really cool. Why are you excited about it and what is it? So homomorphic encryption, so I completely agree with you. I think it even sounds somehow poetic. <laughs> um, uh, homomorphic encryption means that you can collaborate or run functions on data that stays encrypted to those concepts of securing data in transit or securing data that you store. This now enables also securing data in use. So for example, if we um, have account information and usually this account information is stored in the cloud, usually you would have the option to either if you have to change the data, if you have to look something up, you the cloud provider would uh, decrypt the data or you would decrypt the data in the cloud, work on the data, compute on the data, and then afterwards the data gets encrypted again. Or you would download the encrypted account data, you would decrypt it, you would compute on it, you would work with it, and then you would encrypt it again and upload it on the cloud again. But with homomorphic encryption, it is possible to compute on the data while it stays encrypted. So you would go to the cloud, work on the data while it stays encrypted. So really in this unsecure environment, stays encrypted. And that's a completely new concept. I mean, they were like looking for that, searching on that subject for years. And now, now it's getting more and more um, possible to really have that in a robust and uh, have worked that it's working fast enough that, that the use cases are getting more and more. Obviously, if I'm able to do my processing and computations on the data without unencrypting the data, then the data remains secure. But what about the use cases around privacy, right? So um, security is just one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is let's take retail or financial services, for example, when they share data, you know, it becomes, I, for, let's say I'm the consumer and I become a commodity, right? So um, now you know way too much about me, my behavioral patterns. Some of it could be something that I'm comfortable with and some, some may be um, beyond what I had envisioned when I shared the data. So it doesn't still solve the problem of, oversharing in terms of, you know, I gave it to X, but now I have, my data has gone to three X, um, you know, or, or 10 X companies, and they are using it for purposes that I could have not even imagined. And at some point that feels like a violation of my privacy rights, right? So even though it's secure, 
it doesn't really solve all of the other privacy issues. Um, what do you think of that? Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. So the collection limitation or the purpose specification, the use limitation, all those privacy principles, of course, are not covered by just applying some privacy enhancing technology. That's probably why it's called enhancing and not like something else. So I completely agree with you, although there is really an ongoing research or discussion about if, for example, homomorphic encryption and multi-party computation could also be considered anonymizing data and or de-identify to do de-identification with those technologies. And that would mean that they would not be in the scope of GDPR anymore, for example, or other privacy-related regulations. And that's a different different topic then, right? If we like are in the scope or not. So if we do even have to take care of those privacy principles, if we have anonymized data. So this is getting a really complex and super interesting field because, I mean, if I can imagine, I mean, Apple's CSAM, I think it was a good example where it was also kind of a privacy enhancing technology that they used on the device, on the edge, um, scanning, but it wasn't perceived well by public. So the PR spin it got was really super negative. And I think when it comes, for example, to homomorphic encryption, and um, that could happen too, actually. So if we have a lot of consumer data and there is some computation or some machine learning training done with that data or some data value generated from homomorphically encrypted consumer data, um, someone could argue, well, data was encrypted, I couldn't see what was, and so it was de-identified, I didn't have the key. But on the other hand, there's still the value that is generated from that anonymous, even if it's considered anonymized. So I think that in the end, consumers will might not be comfortable with companies gaining insights and gaining value from data, even if one could argue it's de-identified. Um, so agreed. So here are my questions. So, I, you know, what you're trying to say is in privacy enhancing technologies are great. They solve some problems but it, they don't completely solve all of the problems. And it's important to understand the use case. And um, also it's important to understand that just because we adopt privacy enhancing technology, we've not solved privacy pro problems or privacy altogether. Um, some of the other issues remain. And I think that's where I, I feel like sometimes um, there's this assumption, and, and it, it applies not just in privacy enhancing technologies, right? We were talking about, for example, um, you know, in cookies, like people go, oh, third party cookies are bad, but first party cookies, you know, now privacy is not theirs because it's just us. But, you know, some of the issues, it still exists. And it, it's, it's, you know, looking at it more closely and understanding what issues kind of are solved and the ones that exist and being able to kind of um, provide meaningful feedback or if I might call advice to, to ensure that we're not kind of dropping some of the other principles, privacy principles and the privacy issues on the table while we're sort of incorporating these things. But yeah. um, you also talked a little bit about pseudonymization and anonymization. 
Before we go into that topic, I do want to ask you about secure multi-party computation. Um, what is secure multi-party computation? So secure multi-party computation or also called MPC is uh, a way of sharing data or data insights while the input data remains completely private. So you and me, we could uh, share uh, how much we earn without wanting each other to know how much it is. So this is like the, the starting point of this, the whole development, the millionaire's problem. I mean, I, I hope you are a millionaire and not, but I can tell you so much, but we could share um, how much we earn and the output would um, show that without revealing how what we actually what was the input what was our input i mean this example is really simplified because of course from the output if it's not set up correctly one can draw conclusions what the input was that should not happen like in a in a real npc arch, uh, architecture but in fact it was used for a wage gap uh, analysis in boston that's also a very classic example i think they're even still doing it so a lot of companies really sharing their um, salaries and to see if women earn less than men. But the companies, of course, didn't really want to give insight. So it is um, a multi-party computation architecture is applied and it really just reveals um, the, the wage gaps, but in no way it is revealed um, how much the companies really pay their employees. A good use case for this would be we did a podcast with a company before relating to FCPA. So they had an AI model uh, that they were training. And uh, part of uh, the process was to identify possible violations and then obviously do, do some investigations around it. But they were looking for ways to share this AI technology that they built in-house with other companies with the idea that, you know, together some metrics would be shared, but uh, so that the overall AI model can be enhanced. But at the same time, they didn't want to kind of disclose some of the confidential information that probably um, was specific to the company. So it, th that would be a great use case for multi-party computation. But multi-party computations are already used very widely, isn't it? Mm -hmm. I think that actually there are way more use cases already for multi-party computation than we are aware of. Just a small research I did, it implied um, distributed signatures, key management, for example, uh, code signing. I mean, that really, like you, you don't only can use it when you uh, collaborate with other companies, but also within your own company that the key is split up and only three people together can sign, for example, a code before it's shipping. Yeah, and of course, in privacy preserving machine learning, it's one of the main technologies used. Also in blockchain, there are some use cases, and again, in financial fraud detection, digital advertising, and of course, medical research. So it's, I think, way more common already, and it's really on the rise or about to become a, a standard for specific use cases. Yeah. 
you you bring up a really good point, right? So EDPB recognizes MPC as a technical safeguard and a pseudonymization technique for processing personal information. It, can you elaborate a little bit on on uh, on that? Yeah, so we all have heard of Schrems too many times, I guess. Um, he's from Vienna, like me, by the way. And um, his office was just like um, the street behind my office, um, but I don't know him. But anyway, so um, those new supplementary measures that the European, European Data Protection Board now published or suggested, strongly suggested, yeah, one, one of them is a split processing, how they call it, or multi-party computation. And they invested in, in projects for quite a while before that. So it's actually quite interesting so that they did that. And that's, I think, the reason why it's so on the radar, because they could also have mentioned other privacy-enhancing technologies explicitly. But yeah, so they, they really um, mentioned it as one potential technology used to secure data in uh, transnational data transfers. So also to use it in the um, transfer impact assessment to take that into consideration as one tool to really um, supplement any other uh, measures to provide the same uh, protection for data when it's transferred, for example, to the US as when it would stay in Europe. So that's really an amazing step forward. And I think it's not yet so widely recognized or thought through what it actually means and how we could utilize this um, appreciation of the technology that was had happened. So coming back to, we talked a little bit about anonymization, right? I do want to compare pseudonymization versus anonymization. From a practical standpoint, I think there is a lot of confusion um, definitely uh, across the board, right? In terms of what data will be considered truly anonymized? Because sometimes um, people pseudonymize the data and end up thinking that they have anonymized. Well, that's uh, a very, uh, when can data be considered anonymized is a very, very complex and uh, tricky question that would require different answers uh, depending on in which country you are. Even in Europe, there is no one clear guidance from the European Data Protection Board or provided by the GDPR itself or by the European Court of Justice. So, so there's really, that's, that's one of the main problems, I think, uh, that there is no legal clarity about what exactly is anonymization and what is pseudonymization. The ICO in the UK just came out with its second chapter of its anonymization report or guidelines. So they're really, really investing in more uh, information and providing um, increasingly legal clarity around that. I think that's really awesome and super needed, super helpful. And they are using the motivated intruder test um, to assess if uh, data can be considered anonymized enough. And in that regard, then 
falls outside of the scope of the UK GDPR or the GDPR general. So, and it's the same like with the HIPAA privacy rule, that's also such an old rule. And either for the identification, you have this very well known removal of the 19 identifiers, or you have an expert opinion. So, what's if an expert says, okay, this data can be considered uh, not individually identifiable, so I cannot identify an individual again, then I can it can be considered de-identified and HIPAA does not apply anymore. Um, and I would argue that many privacy enhancing technologies fall and can can fall under this exception, actually. But it's not, it's still a risk because um, yeah, that there's a lack of really legal clarity around that. Okay. Just pet and now encourage people to store data permanently and gives one a false sense of security and privacy. How do you, uh, what do you think of that? So I think it really depends what pet you use and we would need to look at it um, like on a case to case basis, but for example, if we have synthetic data and the data set is, that's an anonymized data set. So we don't need to really delete this data set ever. So, but if we're not outside of regulations, of course, we still, like we said before, we still need to follow the regular uh, privacy principles with, uh, yeah, we need to destruct it or delete the data so that still applies. So we need the legal basis for processing. And if the legal basis is not there anymore, then we still need to apply all those different um, requirements. And so that doesn't change anything. But in general, I think privacy enhancing technologies are like I said at the beginning of privacy by design uh, tools. So privacy by design strategies can really uh, be pursued with pets. For example, if we take um, Höpmann, so Japheng Höpmann's um, uh, strategies, privacy by design strategies, um, and he divides that, for example, he lists minimization, separation, abstraction, hiding as um, privacy-friendly data processing. And I think those things can be pursued way better with um, privacy-enhancing technologies. So we can fulfill the privacy by design, privacy by default requirements that we have in a GDPR Article 25 with privacy-enhancing technologies. And the GDPR also requires us to use state-of-the-art. And that is as soon as a technology is mature enough and rolled out on the market, there the state of the art already begins. So that's why we both, I think, agree that in a couple of years, those technology will be way more widespread because we can just increase the privacy and confidentiality um, with those technologies. And I think it's interesting to also um, think about this privacy triad, not only the security triad, but the privacy triad that NIST came up in its um, privacy engineering uh, introduction, the introduction to privacy engineering and risk management in, in federal systems, because we hardly ever talk about that triad. And it's 
predictability, manageability, and disassociability. And privacy-enhancing technologies also help with those privacy objectives very much to know what processing is about to go on, to manage the processing and to, to, to process the personal information without association to individuals is, is one part of this privacy missed triad. And so in this regard, I don't think it can only be considered as a security tool, but really like the na name says, it's more on the privacy side because new collaborations can also uh, take place, like we mentioned them before, that go beyond, this has nothing to do with, so not so much with security, it's really about the private inputs that stay private, that enable new forms of collaboration beyond just securing data in a, in a common, commonly understood way. But almost all technologies have vulnerabilities, right? So it's not like privacy enhancing technologies are perfect. Um, so they bring new vulnerabilities. Can you talk a little bit about the vulnerabilities that are possible with at least two of the privacy enhancing technologies we talked about, which is homomorphic encryption and multi-party computation? Yeah, I think we all know that there is no zero risk. There is no absolute security. This is why we have so many great people working in the field of information security and still so many things happen. So of course, this is the case also with privacy enhancing technologies. And um, there's, as far as I could see, a lot of research going on and still there's a lack of broadly accepted definitions of robustness, for example, in privacy preserving machine learning and the security properties do not 100% translate from one use case or one technology to the other. But for example, we have uh, membership inference attacks in privacy preserving machine learning. That's a classic so that the data set um, that it's uh, reverse engineered what data set was used for training, for example. But this field is really so there, there are so we only think that there are hundred people in the world who has heard of uh, who have heard of uh, homomorphic encryption and multi-party computation because I heard people saying that, but that's not true. There's this huge <laughs> ecosystem of privacy-preserving machine learning on people who are looking into those security properties. So any system has to be set up appropriately to to be as secure as possible. And of course, it's also true for for pets. We touched on this a little bit um, about the lack of coherence from an anonymization standpoint, right? So you talked a little bit about, you know, every, there is no consistent way to define what is truly anonymized and there are so many definitions. So it's very hard to come up with, a, you know, a definition of this is truly anonymized. But part of that is also, you know, it's very hard to think about how to de-anonymize it because there's so many different ways in which like the minute you um, think it's anonymized, you find a way to sort of de-anonymize it, if I can use the word. Um, so um, same thing applies to pets. There are, uh, there, is, there are some inconsistencies and from a regulatory standpoint, um, can you share your thoughts around those inconsistencies, as well as what needs to be done 
before privacy enhancing technologies become mainstream? Yeah, well, I mean, um, it would be great if we have more guidance um, in terms of uh, just regular uh, rep reports or guidelines by authorities, but also, of course, regulations. I don't see that really coming, particularly in the US where we still struggling to get a coherent privacy regulation. But I think that there's a lot of support for research in that field and that will then also have to be followed up by regulations. So I think sometimes regulations lead like the GDPR, um, it led, it was really like um, spearheading this whole new universe of privacy, but uh, sometimes it has to catch up. And I think in, in, in the world of pets, it's more regulations catching up and that there, that's a lot to do here. But I mean, we see that things happen and um, this promoting Digital Privacy Technologies Act that was at least introduced into the Senate. I don't think it will really be pursued, but it in the US in February 2021, so this year, um, defining pets as software solutions, technical processes, and other technological means of enhancing the privacy and confidentiality of an individual's personal data, and also explicitly, for example, mentioning privacy, uh, so multi-party computation, and this act would have foreseen or wants to have a finance more research on the topic. And I think part of that research would also be really looking into the details. When can what be considered anonymizing or de-identifying or not? Because this is what we need for the business. I mean, this is what we, everyone or everyone, like many people talk about generating value from data that we have not even thought of yet like on what data are we actually sitting how could we leverage this and we need those technologies and clear definitions um, about uh, anonymization and pseudonymization to really be able to do this because otherwise it, the risk for the businesses is just still um, too too big any other closing thoughts um yeah, I just wanted to mention that because I stumbled over this last week and going um, in more detail looking at it, and I think it's just really a, a super interesting method. So in the realm of threat modeling, so we know that threat modeling is really uh, something very useful in, in information security, but for privacy-specific privacy threat modeling, I, I find that this Linden approach is really super interesting. So maybe some listeners are interested in that too. It really designs the data flow and then looks at the data flow um, in Linden. So it stands for linkability, identifiability, non-repudiation, detectability, disclosure, unawareness, and non-compliance. It looks at the data flows from that specific angles and then maps those um, vulnerabilities that have been found to specific pets. So that would be a very practical method to bring privacy enhancing technologies into the existing workflows. And yeah, I just wanted to drop that here because um, yeah, that was my last post on LinkedIn about. And I think that's really something 
super useful. And again, it was um, developed in Leuven in Belgium, where they also have this cluster of really smart people and um, things going on in the in the realm of that, uh, pets. So that might be useful for someone. Thank you so much for taking the time to participate in the podcast, Katerina. It was very, very useful to talk a little bit about pets. And, and um, you know, obviously it's hard to take a deep dive because these are pretty complex technologies and there is a lot to talk about. Um, but at least, uh, you know, uh, at a very high level, we were able to introduce uh, some of the privacy enhancing technologies that seem to make a difference today. Yes, thanks so much for having me. It's really a very complex topic. I agree with you, but it's just we have to have the courage to just approach it because there is so much opportunity. And so, yeah, it's good to talk about it for sure. Thank you again.